0: Are you ready to take your mindset to an even higher level on and off the mat? Then you're ready for the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, where jiu-jitsu practitioners open their minds to new ideas and concepts about personal development, entrepreneurship, jiu and life. Our mission is to inspire, impact, and or improve your life in some way to support you during your consistent pursuit of becoming the best version of yourself personally and professionally. It's time to go beyond the mat with the host of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, Gustavo Dantas.
1: Welcome to episode 115. Today we have Jiu-Jitsu Black Belt Ethan Priceworth. Ethan oversees medical handling for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federations like the IBJJF and provided medical coverage for BJJ events since the mid-90s. Matter of fact, Ethan helped me out in 2015 when I dislocated my elbow at the Worlds, and I'm glad he was there because I was in a lot of pain, so we talk about that too. And we talk a lot about common injuries, new IBJJF rules for no gi, and a cool topic too, jiu-jitsu in the U.S. in the early 90s. So if you have any guest suggestions... Any feedback, you can always send me a message on my Instagram, at Gustavo Dantas BJJ. I hope you enjoyed the interview, and stay tuned right after Jiu-Jitsu Tribe's message. Uss. The BJJ Mental Coach Podcast is a proud supporter of the non-profit organization Jiu-Jitsu Tribe, formerly Live Jiu-Jitsu. Jiu-Jitsu Tribe supports social projects who offer free Jiu-Jitsu classes to unprivileged children and young adults in impoverished communities, inspiring, impacting, and improving their lives, keeping them away from drugs and crime, creating hope, and creating champions on and off the mats. Your donation helps projects to pay for their monthly expenses and facility makeovers. As a supporter, the BJJ Metal Coach donates all the profit of all online courses and merchandise to Jiu-Jitsu Tribe. For more information, please visit wwwjiu tribeorg Let me introduce you to today's guest, Ethan Christworth. Ethan is a jiu-jitsu black belt and the owner of Christworth Sports Medicine Systems, which oversees medical handling for Brazilian jiu-jitsu federations and has provided medical coverage for BJJ events since the mid-90s. Ethan earned his PhD in athletic training from Rocky Mountain University of Health Professions in Provo, Utah. Currently, he is the director of education for rocktape global which develops and delivers worldwide curriculum in education. Ethan has worked with many Olympic, pro college and high school sports teams as a certified athletic trainer since 1996 and he has been a contributing author in peer reviewed journals such as International Journal of Athletic Therapy and Training, Journal of Athletic Training, Athletic Training in Sports Healthcare, International Journal of Sports Physical Therapy, and Journal of Canadian Chiropractic Association. Dr. K, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks, man. Long time huh? from uh, dealing with your own personal injuries and helping you out and seeing you fight out there to actually being on your podcast. So I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me.
1: Yes, sir. So we're recording this in January 2021 while the madness is going with uh, the coronavirus. I like to mention the date because someone might be listening to this 10 years from now. So who knows? So how is uh, how is the situation where you're at right now in California? So, right?
2: as you know, I, I'm in Los Angeles, so we just actually got the outdoor dining lifted. Finally, uh, you know, I won't bring up politics, but it is what it is. Um you know, as far as jiu-jitsu is going on, you know, we had a very rough year as far as jiu-jitsu and the IBJJF and other federations, but as you know, uh, the IBJJJ Federation has been pushing and holding events uh, in Florida and, of course, in Texas. I just got another email about another event coming up in Texas soon uh, in March. So, you know, try to do everything we can do, obviously. Uh, I, I abide by that slogan, you know, what can we do? And I do that with my, my current company I work with, you know, what can we do to make things better? We have a lot to complain about, this is true. But what can we do to make it better? Because everyone's in the same boat. And I think if we all stick together and we build community, we can make things better and just focus on the positives instead of all the negatives. Because the negatives Far outweigh the positives, but we can't do that to our health, right? We can't do that to ourselves.
1: And jujitsu is about problem solving, so that's what we need to okay.
2: do. <laughs> that's right. That's right.
1: Yeah. So, um, any? Do you see any jujitsu tournament in California this year? What do you think?
2: Jeez, now that's all—all all assumption and conjecture, right? Yeah. Uh, you know. There's so many jiu-jitsu people out here, everyone came here, you know, in the early 90s and LA and so California is the Mecca of jiu-jitsu, in my opinion, you know. Uh, The coasts are the Mecca of jiu-jitsu these days. I I would think by maybe quarter three, I I think jiu-jitsu will happen. I I do. I think maybe uh, uh, late summer, early fall, I think we will be able to see jiu-jitsu here. Uh, but I think it's going to take that long. You know, yeah. schools are going to have to be in session full-time. That means universities are going to have to basically let people on campus. So we, it can't. it's not about jujitsu. It's about the university system and the the, uh, yeah. the school systems actually allowing people on campus. That's really where we're held up.
1: Right on. So tell me, when did you become aware of jiu-jitsu? Now we've been in California. Uh, are you originally from there? Yeah, I, um, I happened upon
2: jujitsu, uh, when Royce Gracie opened up his first gym in Torrance, California, he was, uh, doing events, uh, or doing, you know, workouts out of his garage in Torrance. And, um, my father at that time taught, uh, for, for West Torrance high school. And he said, Hey, Ethan, there's these, uh, this Gracie family that's now at, at school and they have some young kids. And, uh, you know, they're working out and showing some wrestling techniques in the wrestling room. And and I heard about it and I came from a wrestling background, a high school wrestling background. And, um, you know, I never went to go check out the garage in Torrance. I just thought it was interesting. And then when they opened up the gym in Torrance, California or Carson, California, um, you know, I tried it out. That was 92, yeah, 92, 93. And, uh, you know, I, I turned my back to everything because I was a wrestler. And i got choked out constantly and uh it was a great learning experience and i was hooked right away i got to experience really good stuff with um early guys like Lowell and ethan and richard and uh you know chris howder and, and that whole early crew and um you know i trained there for a few years until the machado family came and when the machado family came over i jumped over there and i tried this thing called open guard <laughs> and i was like what the heck and i just got I was so amazed because you know with Gracie we were very limited in practicing Jiu Jitsu it was very you know. Um, Korean had a segregated you could not watch a blue belt class you could not watch a purple belt class you are a white belt you stay with the white belt you drilled only there was live training of that technique for the last five minutes, that was it. Mm-hmm. So you were not allowed to look through the door window and see what's going on. And there was no YouTube jiu-jitsu. There was no backyard jujitsu. It was just that mat training. So they did a good job of keeping you there, right? You just didn't go to practice anywhere. Eventually, you know, people started practicing in their backyards. We practiced in the grass. We practiced on rugs. You know, this is way before you had mats. And if you found a wrestling room, then you were like, oh, great. We could practice jujitsu and wrestling. So I I trained like that for for years, for years, and then finally everybody came, right? And the tournament started happening right around 96, 97. We had like single-person tournaments in hotel rooms. Then we had like two mat tournaments or four mat tournaments in hotel rooms, like the ballrooms. Then they would open up a gym, like the early, early, the real Pan-American games, right, where it was Brazilians first United States, whoever we had, they would line them up down the center of the mat and they would call their weights out. It was like, it was like a dual meet in American high school wrestling. It was a, a true Pan American kind of frame.
1: It was the 95 then, you know, one. That it was
2: 95. 90- yeah. 95 when it was at Irvine, I think, because I think it was also in Florida. One. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so those were the early days and I wasn't competing at that time it was a blue belt. I was just watching and you know because there was big names competing there was, you know bob bass marcio fitosa you know the, the the bigger names of the early early jiu-jitsu and um you know then it just blew up i mean it you know by by 97 the tournament started becoming you know six mat eight mat tournaments and extremely you know poorly ran um hmm. you know it's just like wait around all day long and you know weigh in and who knows if that was even accurate i mean literally you beat your you beat yourself by trying to be in those events you know i mean it was like hanging out for 10 hours you know you're waiting for a tournament i can name some names i'm not going to name names who hosted these tournaments but you probably know it just wasn't well ran and then when i call it the cadillac came which was the IBJJF, they they knew how to run tournaments right because they've been ruining it for so long and real so you know when that tournament came it got much better and then you know year after year it's very you know now it's all it's all computer-driven, so you know when you're going to compete, and that's so great as a fighter, you know?
1: Yeah, and it's cool for you that has been around for so long, and you see the progress of the federation, because even IBJJF, of course, had their growing pains too, you know? So I, I have opportunity to watch the their first official Brazilian Nationals in 1994, and then... You see referees, you know, just there with their gee pants, you know, just kind of like jump in to cover mats and with a hat and eating a pizza, you know, and ref it at the same time, you know what I mean? For that kind of stuff to get to a point, uh, there is today. And I remember one of the pants, I think was the first one in Santa Barbara, 2002, maybe. They had like one scale. The, that was back when the weigh ins were the day before. And I believe they have one scale. They I don't know, I don't know what they were planning or thinking. I don't know. But that way and went for like, and that was one of the first times they hit almost a thousand competitors. So it was a disaster. People, hours and hours and hours. But I'm talking like I literally. This is no exaggeration because I remember very well this trip uh, traveling to uh, from Arizona to California. There was eight hours to get my guys away. No, I, not exaggerating. 10 a.m. and 6, a, uh, 6 p.m. were done. People coming in, cutting line, the line wouldn't move. It was a scene. So something like that nowadays, it just doesn't fly anymore, man.
2: No way. No way. Yeah, those, those were definitely the days. And I think, you know, because it was so new, you didn't have anything to compare it to. So you just dealt with it, right? You brought your food. Hopefully you had food. There was no vendors, you know, it was just in a, in a gym and, you know, it's just a stinky old, you know, wrestling tournament and you're there all day. Kind of like the way wrestling tournaments was when I was in high school, you hung out all weekend, but the the difference was, you know, wrestling in high school, if you had a weekend tournament and it was off season, you got to wrestle, as many times as possible because you had to be good right that's what made you good jiu jitsu it was one and done so you'd wait 8 hours to maybe get you know a bad call or you know who knows a bad referee or you just got tapped out really quick and you paid registration fees and made all that time to travel i would hope that i really wish and it's too hard to do that you know you can have multiple multiple ways to compete on the same day you know people do it now at weight class and then open but it would be great if you can wrestle for second third fourth place because that's what makes you you know the animal of competition versus the animal of training are two different variables and being good at wrestling at a turn or training or fighting jujitsu at a tournament is far different than in, in your gym you could be great in your gym and not be a great competitor so you you need more more visual on that map, you know, in that type of, you know, intensity, you know, we don't have that. Right. And I don't know if we can do that too many competitors. I mean, you're looking For at sure. pans and worlds, you know, you're looking at 2,500 to 3,500, 3,700, sometimes master worlds, you're talking about 6,000 competitors, you know, over five days. I mean, these tournaments are just huge and people put so much stress on themselves to, to win that, notoriety is what it truly is it's nothing more than just a notoriety of being master world's champion at that weight in that belt class you know but you really need if you want to be good you know you need multiple times on that same mat in that type of position you know
1: for sure this is a great advantage that wrestling has is just being on the competition mat all the time that is a great experience to have, even for people who make the transition to jiu you know, just being comfortable in performing.
2: Yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, wrestling, you would have um, maybe a dual meet, which is you versus another school once, if not twice a week, and then tournaments on the weekend. So you're getting live competition, fighting three times a week during the season. That really relaxes your nervous system so you can be good at what you do, because we all know you know, we all know before all the tournaments started coming of all the federations, you you competed at PANS and you competed at Worlds twice a year. That was it. You know, hopefully there were small tournaments. Now there's so many federations, you can compete once a month, you know, when, when it's not a COVID year, you know? So that's good. That's good. That's what's needed.
1: For sure. So when did you get involved in being an athletic trainer? Let's say uh, when the spark came in for you to kind of go dedicate your life to being a trainer
2: yeah so Giberto was one of the first ones who kind of hosted tournaments in, in the Southern California area and you know I would say hey I want to compete at the tournament um uh can I trade my services for uh for, you know, for registration fees. And then I did that with the IBGGA when it came too. It's like, hey, I will do this for you. This is what an athletic trainer is, care and prevention of athletic injuries. And I can hang out mat side with a treatment table, a bunch of ice and a lot of tape and things to treat people to keep them on the mat so they can compete. Um, and then you know, when my time comes, I'll warm up and I'll compete. Then I'll come back to my training area. And I did this for a while in the small tournaments. And that was probably 97, 98, um, so that's how it all started. And then I, you know, everyone else kind of fell by the wayside, and IBJJF kind of really became the stronghold of tournaments in the late 90s, early 2000s. I guess it was early 2000s, probably. And I started developing the tournaments, got bigger and bigger, more mats. So I needed more people. So I started hiring other people like me to say, hey, let's work this event together because you're looking at, you know, 12 hours, 14 hours, sometimes 16 hours, 18 hours all day, four days a week until they finally got it down to 10 to 12 hours like they do now. So it's a lot of hours looking at the mat, but you know, when you love the sport and you're passionate about the sport, we all hang out there for that long. I'm just working doing it. So, um, you know, I've been doing that probably since 97, 98 uh, as an athletic trainer, I'm outside. I've been competed uh, for probably about three years, I think was my last tournament, uh, PANS, So I'm not really competing much anymore. I'm 51 years old, black belt, and I just love the sport. So I'm still involved and I have, now I have a big team. I have a big team nationwide of athletic trainers who uh, cover events. So if uh, IBGGF calls me, which they do, and they say we're having a tournament in Florida here, um, I send a team of 10, maybe 12 there or some live there and they take care of that event. So, and that's underneath the, the company name Christworth Sports Medicine Systems. So, yeah. it kind of all, all panned out. It really panned out for me just wanting to be involved to this monster start growing and growing. And I just stayed with it.
1: And for people who are not familiar, maybe we have a lot of people just starting jiu-jitsu. So, maybe you don't, don't go much to the IBJJF scene. Um, I can definitely say that, man, uh, you guys offer the best service as far as athletic training and watching for the competitor. I've been a promoter for 20 years. So I have kind of struggled with finding crews that I like, you know, I've replaced so many people. And the problem is I have my standards like straight up. I, I, I see what you guys do. And I was like, I want to, what those guys are doing on my event. And when they get not even close, I get kind of like, huh, that's kind of disappointing, you know, but like, just, I see a lot of like the hands on one thing that I, that I think that it's so cool that you guys did. And then I would, I would have to ask people like someone got hurt. You don't see one any of the staff or yourself, like strolling to the mat to get to the person. You know what I mean? It's like, yo, you know, chop, chop, you know, getting there. And, I thought it was kind of like a no brainer in a way, <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's not common sense and not always come in practice. And so how did you train them since the beginning you know, to stay like, yo, watch it, boom, hands on. Cause you have to be a great leader on the day and you have to be pretty present all day long. And I, I bet that it's exhausting being that present all day long.
2: That's exactly right. Uh, you know, Uh, Thanks. Thanks for pointing that out. That is the number one thing that people point out when they hire people other than us. um, Is at the speed of treatment and in my policies and procedures manual. That is one of my variables that anytime you're on the mat you run along the yellow do not cross the blue. So I, I have an algorithm for them that if you see a referee wave First of all, you know, there's an algorithm for how many people cover mats. You know, we have one athletic trainer per four mats, and then we have two in the medical tent area, if you will. Uh, Sometimes we have even more, depending on how big the event is. So that alone means that we have constant eyes on the mat. No one takes lunch breaks, no one takes, you know, if you take a bathroom break or you need to eat, that means another set of eyes is on the mat. So it's under constant observation. And when you can do constant observation, then it makes the referee's job easy. Hey, hand raise, uh, doctor, go. And then he is on, right? He is on in seconds. And again, like I said, my rule is you do not walk to an injury. That's, that's significant. No matter if you've seen it a million times, no matter if it's a hangnail versus a blister versus a dislocated elbow, you, you are running to the mat. And I pride myself on that because that's what typically I hear is like, oh, they weren't watching. You know, They're over in the tent area. They don't wanna to come to the mat that's all poor quality sports medicine if you ask me so uh, running to the mat taking care of it and taking care of it in in precise time if that person has you know something you know i because i'm a black belt in the sport i know i know what it looks like right i know the mechanism of the injury i've suffered all of them myself uh, i know what stalling looks like I, I know what injury looks like and we go You know, we go and say, hey, can you continue? Can you not continue? Unless it's something very visible, like a dislocation. You know, and I really give them those opportunities. And I tell my athletic training staff, give them that that opportunity. Can you continue? Because if it's an orthopedic injury, I'm not too worried about anything extra. If it's a head or neck injury or some type of brain injury, okay, then we stop and we take a lot of precautions. So, you know, we know the sport. These people get hurt a lot practicing the sport. This is a competition. If they can move it underneath their own care, if they can weight bear it underneath their own care, I give them, you want to go or not? Because we need to go now. And I don't sit there and hang out like an EMT or somebody who does not know the sport. On, take care of it, macro trauma control, and get off the mat. So I love that.
1: So what did you say is some of the no-nos of referees to be like, dude, I know you want to help, don't do? I know that over the years, probably you guys, I would assume, have a little bit more control or talk with the the referees or guide them, be like, don't mess with it, don't do this, just let us, you know, just let us know or just call us when you come. So what did you say some of the big no-nos for the referees?
2: Yeah, so over the years, um, you know, I've talked to uh, Andre and to the Emma, I said, can you please infuse me into the referee courses? They need to know who I am and what we do. Nice. So I was more proactive on the greater scheme saying that medical and referees should be a one unit. They are the support staff. So I started going to the referee courses with them and meeting with the head referees saying, this is what I want you guys to do and don't want you to do. And then they can disseminate that information to their staff. So that's the way I started it. Some of the big no-nos that I recall, you know, back in the day was you know, some referees when the person would get choked out, they would sit them up and start putting their knee in the back and extending their body, like trying to get air in their lungs. I've never seen this before. And I don't know where they read this or where they learned this. Probably but...
1: somewhere in Brazil they did it. And they brought it, they brought it over. And that's it.
2: <laughs> I wasn't gonna say that, but it's definitely something they did. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
2: <laughs> yeah, so so we squashed out right away. Uh, I said, you know, if you have a quality medical staff there, call. We are a constant observation. You raise your hand. We will be there. Fact. Unless we are all on the mat, all busy, we will be there really, really quick. So you don't. You are not medical. It's not up to you to raise legs, which, in fact, doesn't really do much anyways. Um, it's not up to you to evaluate a body part. You know, it just raise your hand. Your job is to referee and stay consistent with your referee. My job is to take care of the athlete and render if he can continue or not. That's so let's have let's have precise job descriptions here. And that's where I think, you know, I, it helped with the IBGGF. They were very open to that. In contrast, I've worked with other federations that have not been open to that, you know, and I don't really work with those federations anymore. So luckily, I'm at the point now where I pick in you know, I've chosen who I really want to work with, you know, and luckily I'm in a position to do that.
1: Beautiful. And I know it's tough to generalize, but you feel that is there any belt that you see a little more injuries? I know it's very tough to say, but I tell you what brown belt days, I see a lot of people limping, man. When people they, they're allowed to attack those toeholds and the need, and they're like, I can't wait to get one. I see a lot of limping on brown belt day.
2: Yeah, so originally, you know, I did my PhD and my my dissertation was in musculoskeletal injury of jiu-jitsu practice, so I called it the Epidemiology of Musculoskeletal Injury in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which tells you I took data over very, very large tournaments and I would suggest it based on the data that blue belt was the highest belt being injured in big, big tournaments and it was at the elbow uh, women, uh, suffered more injury at blue belt at the shoulder, which is, which is odd because shoulder is not a a terminal end range type of, you know, lock typically other than a Kia Kimura. They were just, because I think more of the, the, the weakness of the frame potentially maybe that they have injuries at the shoulder. And then my other data suggested that definitely brown, black ankle knee were extremely high because they were allowed to attack. Now, guess what? guess what's going to happen now? What's, what's, what's going to be legal 2021?
1: Yes, sir. I was going to ask man. you about that. How do you so, feel?
2: I feel scared, man. I feel scared. You guys going to be busy. We're going to be busy and that's okay. Cause I'll ask for a raise. <laughs> 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 yeah, but we're going to be busy when, you know, I talked to Andre, and CDM, you know the the main people of the uh, of the abGGf and you know they're keeping up with the times, and they need to do that in order to keep up with the times because sure. so many tournaments are now doing that, and uh, it is what it is. I just think that you know, as a black belt, you know, I, I just feel like uh, ah, I, I'm an old school black belt, right? So pass the guard. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can't pass if you can't pass this guard, then oh, you're not at the level. But now people don't care because. The lower leg attacks are so prevalent and, you know, so many great jujitsu people out there know that, and that there's so much prevalence at attacking the lower leg, you can win the, you can win an event that way. So it is what it is. And I'm not here to discount it. I do know that we will be more busy because people typically don't tap fast enough or don't tap at all to lower leg submissions, you know? So it's going to be, it's going to be very interesting on the, uh, on the flip side of that, we can see. You know, a 10 minute black belt match going for 30 seconds. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, True. it's going to be a snap, snap. So there's other ways to look at it too. So, how do you feel about that?
1: I think I feel that it's time. You know, it, it needs okay. to happen, you know, to catch up. Like I said, you know, uh, we have the main tournaments happening, DCC and stuff. And then the guys, you need to be prepared for it. I have a curiosity about, because uh, when it's sort of, Heel hooks, you know, people lock and it like, oh, okay, you got it. You can, can really, uh, even some, some people recognize in tap even before, man, one submission that I feel that is nasty, that I feel that people usually it's a verbal tap. People don't tap is a steam lock. So what is the damage there? How do you feel about lower belts doing I, to this day? I'm still confused. Like, is it allowed? Is not allowed? Cause that one is nasty
2: really really nasty and you know i think a lot of people don't know that lock so people play open guard keep their foot in front of the person it's there man and you know the the thing when i see a steamer locks that is a direct injury to the ankle and to the forefoot when i say heel hooks that is injury to the knee you know knee and the hip And if they crank hard enough you can develop a a really bad spiral fracture in the lower leg but really you're looking at acl and pcl injury at the knee you know because uh, the hip is rather immobilized and then they grab that heel and they rotate your whole leg into internal rotation your knee doesn't go into internal rotation it's it's not allowing it you have very very small degrees of that range of motion and this is really why I'll tell you what I see the most of now, and the data isn't out there because I haven't collected it. Other than just anecdotally, I see this after year and a year. You know, playing deliheva or outside hook has done havoc on a lot of people's knees because, not that it's dangerous, but it's because they don't have the available hip range of motion to play the position. So people learn; they watch a lot of videos. They want to play deliheva, outside hook, and barambolo, but they don't have the range of motion, the controlled range of motion of the hip. Yeah, and that's what creates these knee injuries that I see. And that knee injury is typically PCL, LCL, the lateral ligaments and the internal ligaments of the knee. Not because they're getting caught in a a terminal lock, they're basically playing a position that their body isn't required for And so I'm a short, stocky guy. I know what I'm allowed to play. And if I shouldn't play that, I shouldn't be there, man. So I have to be very safe. And I think that a lot of lower belts aren't safe. They want the, you know, the the crazy looking position instead of the basis of jujitsu. You know, so just my two cents. But that's what I've been seeing a lot: is outside knee injuries based on De La Hiba. people just sit in that position, and their hip doesn't allow for it. So the knee has to take up all the slack. It's bad news.
1: Ugh. So in your experience, what are some of the like special, like some of the big events what are some of the worst injuries that you've seen first yeah, want
0: to
1: so. first i want to ask some that they're not able to continue and some i want to uh see if you remember some of them they're like man that was a bad injury this guy's still going you know yeah. so let's well, go we can fra- talk about
0: homolo we can yeah, talk about that's, homolo that's, all day
1: <laughs> that's the first one that comes to my mind for sure
2: i mean i've i've probably relocated everything on homolo by now ankles you know, I I think I did a patella, kneecap, uh, elbow. Uh, you know that the one ankle lock in the finals of the worlds was that toe hold was so nasty. And, you know, I, I I don't know how you feel, right? I come from a jujitsu background and a medical background, so when I see a toe hold that far and the the ankle is obviously dislocated and he's still not tapping, people call him a warrior. You know, I, it's kind of like yeah, you are a warrior. It's the finals. But then again, it's like the damage being done over a long period of time is also great. I've talked to Homolo multiple times since then and he's doing fine. But I can't say that for everybody else who got caught in something that ugly. I mean, he broke his ankle in that toehold. He he ripped all his lateral ligaments. He ripped a tendon off of his bone. He, he damaged the what we call the syndesmosis. His ankle joint widened because the toehold was so nasty. I mean, even... Uh, I forgot the guy's name right away but who put the toe hold on him was looking at it going I can't do anything more this thing is dislocated you
1: know It was a Patrick, uh, Patrick Gaudio? no I can't remember was it him no, I can't I can't, I can't remember yeah I can't I remember, I can't remember.
2: But I mean that's a very nasty injury and you got to think everybody's watching that injury so what are we trying to do here are we are we as a community of jiu-jitsu saying that it's okay to dislocate somebody's joints and not tap I mean, you saw it with Jacare, Jacare and Haja Gracie. Jacare, you know, basically had his elbow dislocated by Haja Gracie. Jacare never tapped. He, he ran around the mat with his elbow dislocated and broken until he won the fight. You know, did he win the fight? Haja Gracie got him in a sick armbar. So it's like, you know, that was years ago. But I'm saying it's like, what are we trying to say here? Don't tap and you can win or the game is tap and it's a tap. Okay, because like a kid's tournament. Okay, that is an arm lock. It's good. Stop. You won the game. It's a game, you know? So I think the message, I, I don't know how I feel about the message. It's a warrior sport, but it's not MMA. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not MMA. It's, it's Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It's a sport. So I don't know. I, I, I go back and forth with that. As far as the ugliest injuries, I mean, that was by far a visually ugly injury uh I've I've reduced uh, mandible dislocations, people tucking their chin, of people like to tuck their really? chin in kind of rear naked. Yeah. Really? So we put that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean the force, you know, is great. Dude. Yeah. Um, you know, of course, knee dislocations, not the patella, but the actual knee dislocated. You know, I've seen that. Um, we put that back in. You know what's so great is you know. Because I'm in the sport and because I'm out there within seconds of the injury, the joints will typically the nervous system won't cause a joint to spasm yet so the joint. Like your joint will go back into place with a little bit of work, you know if that joint stays out of place for so many minutes to an hours, it will not go back into place the nervous system and the muscles will make it so tight that you need to be anesthetized. Uh, for that joint to go back into place so being on the mat in rapid fire speed. Puts a lot of things back into place much more easier.
1: Absolutely. Well, uh, for people who don't know, Ethan has put my elbow back in place in, I believe, 2015 maybe. Uh, and this is one of the things I. Each athlete takes the the responsibility of like yeah if someone got a submission and you know uh, or tap or not or let it pop. In my case, it's like the responsibility of going. Into the tournament with I have I had a partial tear in my elbow it was really killing me. At the end of the last two weeks prior to the tournament, that was the Adult Worlds so that won 2015. I was I was swimming. I was uh, just drilling. I was just saving my arm for the tournament because I couldn't really. It, it got every month. I did a bunch of tournaments to get the points, you know, to compete. It started getting worse and worse. And I did one tournament. I think it was in sweden or something and i decided to do the open class when i finished my arm is just screaming it was just like really bad when i came back i took a cortisone shot um and it didn't help at all because i think it was already so i i took cortisone twice in my life one probably i think is 2012 it really helped i was like wow this is amazing You know, and and that was the same album, by the way, this in 2012. So 2015, when things got really out of control, like I'm going to take it. And then I took it. I'm like, uh oh, it's not doing anything, you know, but it it comes to that point that, you know, each one needs to figure out. I was I finally I got my final points to compete at the Worlds uh, three weeks before. So the doctor was like, well, I don't think you should compete. There's a chance of you ripping this whole thing apart. And and now each one needs to take full responsibility. Like, okay, I can go in and know that it can really get it. Or if I, I don't regret at all, I had a surgery, I had to, uh, um, I forgot the, the name of the surgery, but you get a piece of the tendon on your wrist and put it in your elbow. Um, yeah, autograph. Yeah. So I would stay for one year, like no train, one full year. But that's one of the things. If I didn't compete, I wouldn't be at peace. So it's one of those things. Like, oh, I wish you know, I did it. Um, I won my first match, and I, I, uh, I barely. F- I, mean, I didn't feel. I was. I didn't. I didn't have any position that I, a compromised. I was like, okay, it's fine. And then my second match with uh, was uh, JT, um, and with like, I'm talking like 40 seconds. I already felt my elbow shifting. I was like, "Uh oh, and I shift, you know, I dislocated my elbow before too. And I, and I felt yeah. like, uh I felt a shift. And I'm like, no, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. Dude, when he, uh, when he passed my guard, a turnoff force, he wasn't even, uh, a grabbing a Kimura or anything. It was just the tension of my arm pushing against his leg it was whoop way out. And that was bad, man. Uh, I know that one of your guys, um couldn't do it and then you went there and replaced i think maybe i was too too tense when he tried you know what i mean i was so like locked up that i couldn't really relax and then i still have the video that he came in and then i felt a little pop and i was like man it was my god there's the relief was incredible because i dislocated my elbow now many times
2: Yeah. And I, I, remember that And Mark was the one trying to re, uh, trying to reduce it. And here's the thing you may have been tense, but in order to put an elbow in and, or shoulder and, or any joint, you have to be forceful. Mm. It's so I, I hung on your elbow. Cause I have that video too. I hung on your elbow extremely hard. And, uh, I did a couple different other extra things that Mark didn't do that day. And it just takes practice. And, you know, I try to teach the other athletic trainers that's something that you know in athletic training um, joint reduction is not taught It's up to the medical doctor to do that in the hospital. But it just I started trying it and I give myself one rule if I pull on a joint and I feel or hear any crunching we call it crepitus I leave it alone. That's probably, there's probably some breaks and bones. Mm. And I've done that a few times where I thought it was a joint dislocation and I pulled on something and it crunched or grinded I'm like, ah, you got something else going on here. If I could pull on that joint and I, I don't hear or feel anything like that. Then I thinking the visually, the way it looks and the way it's uh, presenting that I'm going to reduce this thing. And of course, with all the years of experience, elbow and shoulder, the two, two joints that dislocate other than fingers are the most dislocating joints fingers of course elbows and shoulders Uh, so you know i i went hard on you but you know i also went hard on you because you're also a black belt you're not scared you know if it's a, a young girl in a tournament and kid you have to be very very careful if not if you don't even want to try you know because it depends on how they are perceiving the injury so you as the athlete perceiving the injury and wanting, accepting that I, you're gonna let me try this, I'm gonna try, I'm gonna try hard. Cause I've hung on some elbows and some shoulders behind the the bleachers at Long Beach State, 20 minutes, 20 minutes hanging on those things and finally they reduce. Yeah, finally reduce. So I'm sweating, sweating hard. So, but I know, and I'm confident and you gotta have that confidence. And I think joint dislocation takes a lot of confidence and that just comes with the years.
1: I have, looking back at my career, I think, well, I had those the normal, you know, got the arm popped and it keep going, you got out and that kind of stuff, you know, it's not super major. But I think the only time I only had twice, I had once when I was a purple belt, the world's in 97. Man, I don't know what happened. I tweaked something. I never had any rib injury and then right in my first match, I tweaked my rib and it's such a weird way that i couldn't extend my body and i just had to kind of crunch in and back then it wasn't as clear as today medical time and stuff like that so as soon as it happened i was i was afraid they're going to stop the match so i didn't say we went kind of out of bounds and i'm like by the time my focus is gone you know i'm just thinking of my rib and then the ref, uh, Hoker, started, like, dragging us to the mid. Every time he dragged us, I was like, ah, ah. And they like, you okay? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was afraid. I'm like, man, they might stop it and I, so I can't. So this dude is just blitzing the hell out of me. I'm trying to just jump outside of the mat because I want to just, like, let's go back up and take a look what is going on. I'm This dude's, let's score, like, four advantages in a row. And I'm just, like, pushing like crazy. And <laughs> then finally I'm finding my way out of bounds. And then look at my rib, and it's really... Uh, high I'm like what the hell and and I noticed that I couldn't really um straight up and every time I did it would pinch and I like ah and I and I'll drop down and my whole game plan was play bottom and I couldn't really uh play bottom I have to play top but anyways at that point so I end up actually this match right with two minutes left I was able to uh playing top went to the side um eternal force and I was able to choke him in the first match so i went to the medical station and the doctor was saying like well i think you should stop this could cause you know you don't know exactly what's going on there could have poked you know your lungs or something like that and then i just that that tournament it was the one that i've never it's, it's I don't know if everyone would relate with this or be able to re- relate. You know, when you have Tony Robbins say about this, there's a, a difference in believing and having a conviction. You know what I mean? When you have a conviction, like, dude, no, it's today. It's today. No, 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 no. It's today. People can beat me all other days, but not today. And for the first time in my life, I actually experienced that. I've never been so uh, focus for, uh, competition. And in 96 was the first Worlds. I took third or that one. And that was a difference of mindset it was completely from one year to the other. And, and then right away, I just told him like, no, I'm feeling bad. I'm feeling better. And, and I remember my, my brother telling me like, man, um, it's one match at a time. When you finish the next one, you look, and I kept going. I have five matches and ended up winning. And that tournament—I uh, mean, after that, all ugly matches, advantages, negative points by the opponent. I mean, I just did what I could. But that—that uh, that was like the the tournament that changed things in in my career, in my mind of what you're capable of doing when you're really like in an awful spot that many people would stop, but when you have that kind of in and, and this is and for everyone who's listening and by anyways i'm trying to impress anyone to be like oh look at me and it's just to press upon you that when you really have the conviction you believe you and i'm not talking just sports i'm talking business like everything you put that in your mind like now nope, to no 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 no. this needs to happen No, it's gonna happen and you just stick with it and i'm not saying that every time is gonna happen but Odds are in your favor. Let's put it this way. If you find, I don't know where I got the strength from. Oh, and one, one thing that is very interesting too. I, I don't even know if I shared this in the podcast. before. I, I don't remember. But anyway, uh, this is the first time I had like kind of like uh, my mental training without having any guidance or anything like that. And I used to have a list with all the tournaments that I used to compete and always before I leave my my house, I put the name of the tournament, how many matches I had, and if I place or not. So just keep a log. And for the very first time in my life, when I left, I I wrote it down the number of matches, and I put champion because I was so like not in a cocky way by any means. Not not at all. It's just a different feeling. So when all that stuff was happening between my first and my second match. Like, I literally had tears in my eyes thinking, like, this is not supposed to end. Like, I wrote this thing down. I've never done this before. So even the simple fact that I wrote something down gave me that strength that I'm like, I'm not bullshitting myself saying that I'm going to win and I'm not. But I just it was just something that gave me an extra strength. So whatever you competitor or for your business, whatever. Strength you can find in whatever works for you, use it. If it's a note that's going to remind you in your mirror, do it. Do whatever whatever you can go back um, and use as a reference to give you that extra push and somehow that uh, worked for me or that day. And would I do it again nowadays? Now, I would call it. But when you're in your 20s, you know what I mean, and you're, like, obsessed with something, you know, I wouldn't do that right now. Probably not. But that that's probably the other experience that I had that was related to injury. And that was fairly hard, but not as bad as the one that you helped me, for sure.
2: Yeah, you know, rib injuries are, you know – Rib injuries happen so much, and we see rib injuries in masters events far more than we do the adult world. So masters, I wrote a I wrote an article for Jiu Jitsu magazine. It wasn't a peer-reviewed research study, it was just the observation of the differences of injuries between adult and master events. Yeah, we used to call them senior, right? But we got that taken off. Mm-hmm. So nice, but, like yeah. <laughs> but what we what we found, or what I I've seen over the years, is that master events far more rib injuries, far more muscle strain, muscle spasm, whereas adult injuries far more acute injury. Um, you know, looking at you know elbow dislocation, joint sprain, you know, due to locks, elbow locks, heel locks, or uh, ankle locks, and so on. So that said, we know that as we get older, things become less pliable, less extensible. So, your rib injury and the ribs of people get far less pliable as you get older. So, what you suffered, mm-hmm. what was called a um, a rib separation, where cartilage and bone meet together, and that's not a strong joint, and they basically they basically change position. So you'll get this flopping, and then once that separates, it takes about Two to four weeks, if not eight, eight weeks, to develop enough scar tissue to create some strength in that area. Mm-hmm. So it's a very different joint. It's just a, it's just a fibrous connection. So you have all the twisting and turning. I did the same type of injury trying to run a clock choke. I did it to myself. I ran the clock choke, and my ribs were really tight on the guy, and he fought it, and my ribs just popped, and I separated those those ribs. That cartilage and rib, costochondral separation. The thing about those injuries, though they are debilitating. So kudos to you for being a warrior, because once you hurt your ribs, you lose the capacity of really good inhalation and expiration. And that's one thing you need in jujitsu is to control breath. And, you know, to go through with five more matches, trying to control breath and finding a way based on your will, kudos to you. It's very, very hard to do with rib injuries. Typically when people get rib injuries, they are done. And I try to tape them and do everything, but it's so hard to maintain the position of jiu because the position of jiu-jitsu is being folded up, rolling through. It's just not the same. as just linear running. It's too hard to do. So good job.
1: And I had a, uh, my second match. I had this guy. He knew. He knew that I was uh, injured. Um, so right at the beginning, um, he scored advantage. And then I got inside his close guard. And he was holding for his life, like, the whole time. And he was squeezing, (laughs) like, my ribs the whole time, close guard. But He he, knew. He (laughs) he just wanted to squeeze. And I was having a hard time to break his guard because he didn't want to do anything. He was like, I'm happy that I got this advantage right right here, and I'm going to roll with it. So I swear to God, one minute left that I'm trying all the guard breaks that that I know I have one that is a call like my emergency guard break. And then I'm using it and I'm like, even like, I remember that even like scream right at the end because it was, he was squeezing, really holding. I'm like, ah, 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 like really pulling. But when I opened, I was so pissed, you know, for a bit. I just went crazy on him for a minute.
2: You know, what's interesting. I, I want to tell, us say this is, you know, once we you know over the years people don't trust medical right they just don't trust medical and they're there to fight and they don't want to be told what to do and i'm not there to hold them out i got athletic trainer who wants to keep them on the mat right a lot of times athletic trainers young athletic trainers do whatever they can to provide safety which is necessary but then they tend to be on the conservative side in fear of something litigious happening i'm more on the other side of like hey you paid a lot of money you flew all the way over here If you can compete, compete. I'll do the best I can to keep you on the mat. Come see me afterwards, unless it's neck or head, okay? That's my only big thing. But that said, when we started seeing people like you, uh, Coyotera, Cobrinha coming to me for advice and coming to the medical area, I think personally, I see a lot more people now of a higher belt level accepting the medical uh, um, information and treatment. Because when I started getting bigger names, um, I started getting a lot of people that started coming now asking me questions and that was needed, right? Because normally the high level warriors wouldn't be caught dead by the medical area, no way, right? And now it's more Mm -hmm. accepting the more higher belts, you know, all the lower belts looking up to you guys or looking up to these big fighters and they see me with a picture of, you know,
1: yeah. i got the signal back. So, so you're saying that, you know, like people feeling more comfortable talking with you guys, trusting more. Right. So you mentioned about something about the pictures, you know, like see pictures.
2: Yes. Yes. I mean, you see, you know, uh, the, uh, I'm very close with the photo staff because, you know, we're always there, always together. And you'll see pictures of me, you know, talking or treating Cobrinha, big name, or talking and treating uh, Leandro Lowe, you know, big name. And, uh, uh, you know, that I think opens up a window saying, okay, these are big names in the game and they trust the medical staff. So I'm going to trust the medical staff. You know, I, I do remember one instance when, oh, I think I was treating Kyotera. And after that, I had like three big name black belts come to me for uh, information and discussion. And I had never had that before. You know, they don't know who I am, they don't know that I'm a black belt in the sport. They don't care to get to know me. They they think I'm the devil because I'm there to, you know, basically tell them they can't fight. True, And that's not the case. So I think I need more people accepting, you know, like you know, you do very well talking about your feelings. You know, that's important in the sport. I think a lot of people still think that you can't talk about your feelings and your injuries. So I think you can.
1: Yeah, you know? absolutely. So tell me more about uh Rock Tape. Is that the name?
2: Yeah, Rock Tape is a, uh is a, It's a product company that makes all kinds of uh, medical supplies. So, Rock Tape uh, is the main product, uh, and it's called kinesiology tape. That's that colorful tape that you see people putting on each other's skin or putting on the athlete's skin prior to exercise. Uh, That's one product. We also make uh, myofascial cups for treatment. We also make instrument-assisted tools for massage. We also make. uh, you know, other types of, uh, you know, floss and things to treat the body to keep you in the game, so to speak.
1: Yeah. So I've seen, I've seen, I've, I've used before. So, um, do you feel that is a, it's a, it's a great help with inflammation? Is that what, that's what it helps? You know, the, the tape, I
2: think, you know, I think tape is a good, what I say, adjunct to therapy. So tape alone is not going to be your problem solver tape. So let's say that uh, I treated your elbow dislocation or I treated you post-surgery with your elbow. That would be part of my treatment. So soft tissue massage, range of motion, strengthening, tape within all those to mitigate the pain and control for inflammation would be a helpful tool within the paradigm of the treatment. People think, oh, tape doesn't work. Yeah, tape alone may not work for you. But tape along with treatment has really good results and that the research is there, the research is there. So uh, I use tape a lot. I'm an athletic trainer, I've always used tape. Uh, I think tape can be used to mitigate pain, uh, control for swelling, create better postural positions, uh, help move scar tissue, I do taping for scar tissue, help change joint position sense. I use it in so many facets. It's really a game changer for a lot of people. And then we also have instrument assisted tools and cups. And what I do for the company is create education along with the medical director to help teach people how to use these things for self for self-application and also for a clinician who wants to apply it to a patient. So education helps a lot in learning about the product and how to use it. Right on. So we have we have all kinds of courses. We do about a thousand courses a year.
1: No kidding. So what'd you say if you Had a conversation with a younger Ethan when you're working at tournaments and you could give him advice on something that you just look back and be like, huh, I wish I knew this information back, you know, whatever, many years ago. But what did you say?
2: Well, I would say it's okay to be wrong. You know, I've been wrong a lot in my life, uh, learning process of life. And I think that, you know, I would, if I was coming in early, I would be asking a lot of questions, I would be uh, of course humbled and you know willing to learn and listen, I think a lot of people like to talk they don't like to listen as much so. more listening is is a lost art people want to talk and hear themselves talk more so listening and learning that way and accepting you know constructive criticism, uh, the best you can that's really, really important so listening, constructive criticism and, and being, it's okay to be wrong. And it's okay not to know. I always say this this uh, phrase, the older I get, the less I know, because that's truly the case. The more and more research comes out uh, treatments are changing mm-hmm. all the time. New treatment ideas are coming out. all the time, and I continue to learn. I'm a, I'm a lifelong learner myself. And I'm always trying to learn, always trying to take courses to better uh, my understanding of what muscle injury is and how I can treat it. So,
1: now, what is a good advice that maybe you give, you know, to friends of yours that are or training partners, just start training white belts, because um, we do have a lot of people um, brand new listening. And when someone gives like, "Hey, Ethan, what's a good tip you give to me to just start training and, and to prevent injuries besides tapping early?" You know, what would you tell them?
2: <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say tapping early. You know, that's so hard, you know, the, a a good jojo, the, the professor does a really good job of matching people up. I, you know, I think white belts, you know, even though higher belts don't like to go with white belts, it's the best way to, to, to learn, you know, white belts on white belts, we know, and you're a professor, you know, how ugly that can get, you know, the thing about competing or, you know, competing inside your own head and competing versus others at the dojo, that's what I mean by competing is that, you know, the, the, the need to win, you know, most people who do jujitsu are type A personalities, in my opinion, and they do not want to give up position. That's still today. That's for every level still today. I trained last night. People don't want to give up position and that's not good learning. So I would say, you know, giving up position and then talking about that position afterwards with somebody who is a professor or higher belt than you how they can move their body better movement. I mean if people if people would just practice the hip escape like to warm up the hip escape. I mean to me that's the most fundamental position of jiu-jitsu learning how to move your hips out of the way so you can replace your your guard or get better retention in, in your body positions. Movement is a key. You know you get so many people that are higher belts that are still just latching down with full grips. I wish people would just the old school way Hoisy Sumesa do it or Fabio Santos, we put both hands in the belt. You know both hands in the belt. Or one hand of the belt therefore you can learn how to rotate your hips and hip escape and use your legs and spider guard i don't think you see that much anymore the the reliance on grips is so huge people don't want to move once they get a grip it's on for life it's on for the next seven minute round mm-hmm. so you know if we can get people to use less hands practice no gi as much as gi saves your hands you have to learn a lot better movement you know um so i guess telling that white belt um, you know, movement is key in jujitsu, you're gonna gasp, but movement is key, don't fight positions. So those, those would be my things. How do you feel about that? Because as a professor and a uh-huh. dojo owner, I mean, you know, we see these white belts and you know, people are studying, people are studying jujitsu. You know, there's white belts now that are early blue belts that are, you know, putting in black belt hours, they're super good already, because they're studying jujitsu online. They're studying, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. three times a day they're training. You know, they have black belt hours, you know. So they're getting good fast,
1: you know. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, and with the white belts, I at least in my fundamentals class, I I try not to do like full sparring at first, positional drilling, you know. Okay, start from side mount, get back, or you know, so little things like that. Sometimes you do some training of guard retention. Okay, you're not allowed to grab. You know, you can just uh, leg movement and framing type of deal. Uh, but yes, I mean, we can talk about it over and over. People still gonna spaz, you know what I mean? Like, so I like to, to show them too. Like, sometimes they want to go fast, and I always teach them, like, okay, this is blitzing, this is spazzing, you know? So if you have full grip, he's all set, you spazzing to someone, you know, you're gonna get tired and then maybe you can get hurt depending on the situation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, So, like, little things like that but it's uh it's yeah it's 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 part of the process and it's good when but it just got to be always reminding them too is a hey, this is your training partner take care of your training partners if you notice that he getting super straight and he's not tapping he might be pissed or say, like i didn't tap you know what i mean like that kind of like be a, a good training partner you know That's try so to explain important. to them too like you know you know you work in construction, you're getting your arm popped here, you know, it, it may be out of commission for work, so think about it, you know. So, all those uh little things that I didn't think when I was younger, you know, uh, I tell my students now, you know, uh, I was talking to someone about a tournament, and he's like, I think he's a yeah, one I have this conversation with many people, but one was a blue belt, yeah, I'm thinking about dropping this. He's a master competitive, full weight class. I'm like, so like you have to take one thing in consideration. Number one, this is not a profession. Uh, Dropping one full weight class. You understand you're going to be miserable, hungry. You have wife and kids and you got to work. You know, (laughs) your day is not going to be very pleasurable. You're not going to be very pleasurable to be around.
2: Uh, So true. If
1: uh, like, are you competing and feeling that strength? Are you getting overwhelmed with the strength? No, so, be, so there's no reason. If you tell them that every time you compete, you're getting overwhelmed, maybe you look for some professional help to do either some strength training or some proper dieting to lower the vision, but not like suddenly I'm going to lose weight. But only if you feel like if it's really needed or you feel that this weight class is just too much for you, and then we kind of can really program, but don't just go because your family won't stand you. You know what I mean? You're going to be miserable and... Just for a tournament that is not going to change anything in your life. It's cool. Yeah, everyone will have goals. But I I try to talk people out of like cutting weight, cutting it for me Mm -hmm. with them was like three, four pounds. Like, can you handle that? Can you close your, you know, can you clean up your diet? You know what I mean? Like something small. Yeah. Now, uh, I say like if you're in the middle of the vision, stay there, you know, go healthy. And that's you it. Know,
2: you know, the uh. if I if I recall correctly, over the years, the high school and college wrestling programs have changed to weighing in only twice a year. So you weigh in at the weight you want to be in and they check your, your specific gravity, gravity of your urine. So they check your salt content to see how hydrated you are. So you have to weigh in. Huh. And you have to weigh in at your weight, and you check your urine specific gravity. It's called a refractometer, and they see okay, you are hydrated, and you weigh this weight. This is the weight you will continue all the way through the fall and the winter, and then we will we we uh, weigh you in after the holidays uh, if you want to change your weight up or down again. So only weighing in twice, and then what that helped with is this incessant weight loss and basically death rates. I mean, every year there is a death due to some type of major, you know, mortality issue based on excessive weight loss. We see it every year. Uh, You know, the numbers are extremely low, so percentages are low. So statistically, it's not really a factor, but, you know, one death is a death. So people trying to lose weight the old school way, trying to make weight right before a jujitsu event, stepping on the scale and then going out and giving it your all a lot of people collapse you know and it can be avoided i don't know if they would ever want to do it but that's more the traditional um uh uh with the scholastic way of doing it is twice a year no more weighing in the day of or the day before which is good because it keeps you honest so if you come in you you could come in at your weight you want to be a middleweight okay at the first event, you come in at the middle weight, hydrated. That's going to be your weight all year round. So at every event, you have to come in at that
1: weight. If you're over, if you're over, you're bummed. You, know? you got to keep that weight safely. Safely. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're getting close to the end of the interview. One thing I want to ask, do you have the habit of reading or audiobooks or podcasts, anything like Yeah, that? of
2: course. You know, most of my stuff, um, I'm actually reading a great book right now called um, – disconnected kids disconnected kids talks more about the the learning environment of our youth because everything's changing man everything is changing kids are learning differently now uh they have a lot more conditions that we're more aware of based on the spectrum of autism uh, uh you know hyperactivity disorders and you know it, the, the percentages of children being diagnosed with some of these conditions is really high upwards of the 60 of the boys and the 40 percent of girls so learning you know who you're teaching to you know how are they perceiving that information right so it's one thing to show and you can equate this to everything it's one thing to teach something right but how are they perceiving it and how can I do a better job of teaching to that person because everybody's a different learner so knowing your audience is really important so I like to read stuff on education and teaching effectiveness because uh, if you could be a good teacher in jiu-jitsu or in college or or wherever, um, you know, you can change a, a lot of minds, you know, and creating a really good learner is only gonna help the community and that person. So, you know, knowing who you're teaching to and knowing how to get information to them that they can learn, is really important. So most of my stuff, I love sports medicine. I still read a plethora on journal articles in sports medicine, but I really like learning about teaching effectiveness and how I can make a change in that in that arena.
1: Radon, right what is one of the most impactful books that you've ever read, Dep- regardless of the topic? When you think about it, you think about a book it's so like, man, that made an impact on me. I know that comes in different moments of your life. but it, What one comes to your geez, mind? Let me
2: think. You put me on the spot there. Uh,
1: I think <laughs> <laughs> I think I've read.
2: Um, I really like reading about evolution and the evolution of the body. Okay. And uh, I can't remember the name of the book right now. It may be called. It may have been called Why We Run. I always found it fascinating um, why we people started running, you know, originally, you know, if you think about aborigines mm-hmm. and being chased by lions and hunting lions and hunting for food. And basically we went from crawling to potentially standing um, and looking for food right the hunter gatherer ideas uh, running came into place, and I was very interested in that. And I found some books on that. Um, it was a Dr. Dr. Lieberman, I think, uh, wrote the book on why we run, or something of that context. So uh, the theory of biological evolution—it's amazing to me. It's like, why are we like this? We're really good at things. We can we can adapt to so many things. Mm-hmm. We went from walking to running. Do we really need to run? Well, you don't add anymore, right? We have everything at our fingertips. So Yeah. We can do it for fitness now, but you know, uh, those kind of concepts really really intrigue me.
1: Right on. So what are you currently excited about? What's going on um, besides the craziness of what's going on with the coronavirus? But, yeah, what you got going on exciting right now? So
2: uh, exciting for me right now. I'm ready to get back to working some of these tournaments. You know, we've been out of Juicy for quite some time. Um, A lot of people are still training, depending on where you are. So getting back to training. um, Actually, you know what? I I used to race my bicycle uh, in my early 20s. Uh, and now i'm back because of the change of exercise for me i'm back on my bicycle and i'm riding my bicycle mm-hmm. a lot and uh i've actually controlled my weight quite well wow. on my bike so i've been riding in groups and and getting really fit i actually ran into um uh cody Nolov, you know the mma fighter he's coming up to fight um oh, he's got a fight coming up but i ran i ran into him way out in the malibu mountains with some of his training partners and he's a famous ufc fighter i'm like and he's out on the bike i'm like wow Everyone's starting to cross train a little bit more. So that was interesting. Um, Yeah. What else am I more excited about? You know, I got young kids, so, you know, keeping them involved in exercise and, you know, the, I think this, this COVID thing has taken a giant toll on us, you know, uh, socially and mentally. So getting my kids to be out and socialize and play uh, is super important to me. So that was really my goals to keep these kids healthy because I just feel like uh, it's a very unhealthy environment you know, that the message is to don't spread the virus and stay indoors. I think a message can be added that, you know, health and fitness, uh, getting proper sunshine, uh, seeing people, yeah. you know, mental health, mental health is still untalked about. I mean, you you know, you're a mental health person, um, you know, super important that we have strong mental health. And I think that we're gonna see a huge fallout from all of this, you know, um, from this virus and what we've been trying to do to uh you know control the virus but the mental health aspect is gonna be a big role in the up and coming years here so but i'm just trying to stay happy uh, i like to stay fit and just uh you know enjoy my family and be fit
1: cool cool so Ethan, first thank you for the interview for your time and second man um straight up thank you for the service that you've been providing to the jujitsu community again we may have listeners that never been an IBJJF event uh don't know much about it but your work is very much appreciated for all the coaches that understand what's going on the you know the whole complexity of the whole thing uh injuries and being there and being active so uh I can say for many, many instructors that appreciate I I'll say like, man, those guys are awesome. They're always on point, you know, because you guys are. And I I really, really appreciate and thank you for what you do for the community.
2: Oh, thanks, man. Thanks. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. And if you want to find me, you can find me on Instagram at um, Dr. Christworth, dot and I should pop up, Dr. Christworth. And if you're interested in emailing me, uh, Ethan at Rocktape.com. If you want to, if you're an athletic trainer or have interest in sports medicine and you're interested in working in an event uh, to shadow us, uh, you can email me or DM me through my Instagram account and we can get in touch that way. So again, thanks for all your time. You run a great school. I follow you guys a lot. I've competed against some of your students. Um, you know, so it's, it's been good, man. It's been good. It's great to, great to be here.
1: Right on! All right, everyone. Thank you so much. Make it a great day. Ous.